The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles to the New Testament, to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. We are, as I mentioned last week, still very early in our new series, Living the Light of Christ's Return. And First Thessalonians concerns the way that we should live while we wait on our Lord to return to this earth. As you know, as Christians, we certainly do believe that Christ will return. We, we have faith in that. We do believe it. Through the mediation of angels, the promise was made to his disciples as Christ ascended into the heavens. There were two angels that stood by and watched him as he arose, as he rose into the heavens. And, and they said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And that promise made 2,000 years ago is one that we still cling to. But the angels didn't tell the disciples when Christ would return. Jesus never told them when he would return. He said only this, that the day and the hour is determined by his heavenly Father. So there is no one who knows the time. There is no warning for Christ to come back. I don't think there are any signs that we look for that say his coming is just around the corner. We just don't know. We'll know when he comes. And the Father wants us to wait expectantly and to anticipate the coming of Christ in such a way that we will live every day to be pleasing to the Lord when he comes. Now, there may be many reasons why he didn't tell us when he would come, and not the least of those would be he wants to keep us in some sort of suspense, you might say, to ensure that we don't become complacent and lazy in our Christian lives. If we knew when he would return, then we would mark it on our calendars and then we would see that day approaching and then we would start cleaning things up and getting things better and trying to live a a more holy life. You know, it's like when you invite someone to come to your house. You, You don't clean the house a month before they come. No, you wait almost till they ring the doorbell and then you get busy stuffing stuff under the couch and under the cushions and trying to clean up for them. And God knows that's the way that we would be if he set that time for us so that we knew exactly when Christ would come. But if we don't know the day that he will come and we truly believe that he will come, then we'll be vigilant and we'll work and we'll pray that when he comes we'll be holy and sanctified And living lives that will be pleasing to him so that we'll receive the commendation on that day in which he says to his faithful servants, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well, this Thessalonian church was a a good church. They were concerned about being right before God. They were honest in their desire to serve the Lord. They were saved by God's marvelous grace. And, And in their gratitude... For his divine favor upon them, they were a very busy people evangelizing those that were in their community. But they had a problem. And their problem was they weren't very well grounded in the word of God. They hadn't learned very much about the doctrines of the faith. And that's because Paul did not get to spend very much time with them. After forming the nucleus of the church in his missionary journey, that second journey, he had to very quickly move on. 
And this was a church that didn't yet fully understand the doctrine of Christ's return. They knew he would come, but they didn't know how to interpret the coming of Christ as it related to the persecution and, and the intense suffering that they were enduring at the time. One of the wonderful parts of this letter is the joy that the apostle experienced because of their exuberant reception of God's word. They were a believing people. And they weren't obstinate about the truth that Paul preached. The word he taught, they believed. And that's always a joy to a pastor's heart. To have people receive the word with enthusiasm and appreciation. And to tell their pastor, we're glad you teach us the word of God. Well, they knew that Paul spoke the truth. They knew that he was God's man. He was their angelos. That's that word we saw in... in uh, the first three chapters, first two chapters of, of uh, Revelation, speaking of the pastors of the church, it's translated as the angel of the church, the pastor of the church, the angelos. And they knew that Paul was their angelos, their messenger, the angel that taught them the truth. And because of their willingness to receive the word, and the way that they went to work, and the way that they lived out their faith, Paul knew that they were the people of the word. And so that meant that they were God's chosen ones. Now in these next two verses of our study, the apostle rejoices because he is convinced that these are true believers. And as we look at this text, we have opened to us one of the most blessed doctrines of the Christian faith. You can see that in the title of the message. We are exceedingly blessed because we have been chosen by God. Now the doctrine that we want to discuss is that choice. It is the election of God's people to salvation. I want to read from the beginning of the letter and you'll note that our text verses today are verses 4 and 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse number 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. This is the word of God. Late last year, I listened to a series of messages by another Baptist pastor and he was arguing against the doctrines of God's grace. And this pastor disagreed with our teachings on the doctrine of election and he asserted that God does not choose people to salvation. And those of us who believe that God does choose, that we can never be sure of our salvation. We're unsure because we always wonder, am I, God's, am I one of God's elect? Did God choose me? And the pastor said, we, we could never have assurance of that because we might not be chosen by God and then we would die and go to hell. And I suppose that he'd never read verse number four of this text in which Paul said he knew the believers in Thessalonica were God's elect. And so if he knew, they must have known. 
I find it hard to believe that Paul would have better insight than to the hearts of the people that he preached to than they did. And so if he knew, they must have known. And if Paul knew that they were chosen by God, then our next question would be, how did he know? How would he know that these are people that God has elected to salvation? What is it that helped him to determine that these are true believers? How did he know they're God's children? How did he know that God chose them to salvation? And further, the question for you and for me is, how do we know that we have believed? And I think that's a question that we all want to know. We want to have assurance that we are the people of God. So how do we determine if our salvation is real? And if we are saved, we were chosen to be. And so what was in the mind of God before we were born? And what was his disposition or is his disposition towards those who say that they have believed in Christ? I know that there are times of doubt. There are some of you that might not be too sure about your salvation. In fact, there may be some things in your life and some reasons why you shouldn't be too sure. And Paul's letter will help you to determine the truth about your salvation. Now, I want you to note first that you can know that you are a child of God. I mean, you you can know that you were chosen to believe. Every person that is saved was chosen to be saved. And so, therefore, if you are saved, then you are God's elect. Now, we see a very straightforward declaration of this, of the apostle in verse number 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And if you look in verse number 3, we already have a hint for Paul's assessment of their spiritual condition. We can see the report of of their activities. In them, he says, there is a work of faith. There is a labor of love. They are patient in their hope of Christ. They endured steadfastly as they waited for the Lord to return. So that's the first way that you know that you're chosen by God. Do you work for Christ? Do you hold on to the, to the doctrines of the faith? Are you concerned about what the Bible says that you must, how you must live and what you must do? Do you earnestly strive to do what God told you to do in His Word? And further, do you love to do it? Do you love to serve Christ? Is it your life's work to serve Him? Is that your passion? Does it bother you? Do you become convicted when you know you've done something that displeases the Lord that saved you? Are you faithful to your Christian faith at work and at school? Do you keep that Christian testimony no matter who makes fun of you, mocks you, and opposes you? And still further, I'd have to ask you, do you enjoy going to church? Are you happy that you're here this morning listening to the Word of God, singing the praises to Jesus Christ? Do you love the fellowship of God's people? Do you feel a void in your heart when you're not here? When you're not worshiping on Sunday morning? Do you love the Bible? Do you love to pray? And if you have the right answers to those questions, then you can know without doubt that God has chosen you to His marvelous salvation and you are a true believer. See, these are the very things that Paul meant when he wrote to the Corinthians. He said, examine yourselves. Whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. And what would we do to prove to ourselves that we are the people of God unless we have the answer to those questions, the right answers to those questions? Our lives show that we love Christ. 
And so Paul in this text says, I can see what you're doing. I see that you continue steadfastly. I see how you work and I see how you love and I see how you hope and I see that these are the markers, these are the proofs that you are chosen by God. And so he says in verse number 4, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And then if you look at the following verses, he he reflects on what they've done in the past. In verse 6, he said, you became followers of us. We'll have more to say about that later. I have a whole series of messages that come up after this on this very important point, the proofs of your profession. What does it mean to follow? And what happened to them because they followed? Can Can I just give you a hint about that ahead of time for these messages that will come? They were afflicted because they followed. They suffered because they followed, and yet they still followed. In verse number 7, he said they were examples to other believers. They were good witnesses, so much that Paul had very little to do in Macedonia to return there to preach the gospel to people that haven't heard, because they'd already taken care of that. They were missionaries for Christ in their area. In verse 9, they proved that they were changed because they rejected idol worship. They turned to the living and true God. And so Paul looked at that track record and he said, Yes, uh, this is what the chosen of God do. I can tell by what you've done in the past that you are believers. And friends, there isn't anybody but the elect of God who desires to believe and to do these things. But I heard this Baptist preacher make this objection too. He said, election trying to describe what we believe about it, he said that election means that there are people who want to believe in Christ. But if election is true, they can't believe because God won't let them. They want to be saved, but they can't be saved. And I'll tell you, that is a gross misunderstanding on several fronts. It's a misunderstanding of our spiritual condition. It's a misunderstanding of our inherent depravity. A person who wants to be saved is one that has already been touched by God. He's already been spiritually awakened to receive spiritual information. The Bible says very clearly that before God touches a person, he can't understand, and that he'll never come to Christ unless God initiates by the Holy Spirit illuminating him to the truth. Paul said the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. So there is nobody who wants to be saved. The Bible says that all have turned away. It says that all have gone out of the way. There are none that seek God. You can read that in Romans 3. And I think Paul probably understood the problem of man's heart much better than any Baptist preacher. And that isn't even a smidgen of all the other things that Paul had to say in those chapters in Romans about our condition and in Ephesians about our condition. Many other places where Paul speaks of that depravity of our heart. Nobody chooses God and wants to be saved. That person does not exist on planet earth. Not according to God the Father. Not according to Jesus Christ. Not according to the Holy Spirit in which we read right here that in this, in this book that He must work effectually in those that believe. And not according to Paul the Apostle who was inspired to write these letters. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And don't you see the apostle saying the same thing in this verse? It's God's choice. It is God's election. 
And if God didn't choose, if God didn't act, if God didn't speak to your heart, you would never believe. But then I hear this objection from Romans 10:17, where Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so therefore, anyone who hears may believe. And I say that's true. Anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God didn't say, well, you've got to evaluate this. You've got to check it out. Or as, as Charles Spurgeon put it, uh, pull up your shirt and see if there's a big yellow E on your back. And then you'll know that you're God's elect. And then you'll know you're eligible to believe. So maybe that E stands for eligible or for elect. No, God says, believe and you will know. If you believe, then you'll know that you were chosen by God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word is the instrument by which we believe. Faith is the vehicle by which we receive justification from God. But friends, Romans 10:17 does not tell us why you believe. It says nothing about why you believe. So strangely enough, those who read Romans 10 and interpret the way that I've just told you must have got there without reading everything that comes before Romans 10. Because Paul said in chapters 1 through 3 that you are depraved, that we don't seek God. Chapters 4 and 5 speak of how we're justified by faith. It's by faith in Christ alone. And then oddly enough, we get into chapter 8 and there it tells us how a person comes to believe in Christ. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. And whom he called, then he also justified. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. So who does God justify by faith? He justifies those he calls to salvation. And who initiates the call? Is that you? No. It's God who predestined the call. Ephesians 2.8 says that faith is a gift of God. Acts 11.8 says God grants repentance. And so both repentance and faith are gifts of God. And what does that tell us? It tells us that repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ begin where? In God, not us. And when Paul said, knowing your election of God... He takes into account what happened in council halls of eternity to show us that God designed it that way. So if you read Romans 10, you better read the rest of Romans, which shows you how you came to faith in Christ. So 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4 and Romans 8 agree. We would expect it to because it's all the word of God. You were chosen by God to believe. And then the Holy Spirit called and then God gave you repentance and faith because you were dead in your sins and you couldn't respond. And then through the power of the word energized by the Holy Spirit, you expressed that God-given faith in Christ. Now that's the introduction to our subject. Some are content to say, you know, that stuff has been argued for centuries. People have been arguing back and forth for centuries on this issue. Nobody knows, and we can't know until we get to heaven. No, we can know. It says here that we can know, knowing your election of God. We can know. We can be right. Because Jesus is right, and Paul is right, and the Holy Spirit who inspired this blessed word is right. Paul said, you can know this. 
knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. So I have little patience for preachers who don't study. I have little patience for those who pick up a book to read on this subject and call themselves academics. And I have less patience for those who care to do very little Bible study. And they say, well, you know, this is one of those questions. We've just got to wait till we get to heaven and then we'll know. Well, I think maybe we might need to read Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. He said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're a master. That is, you're a teacher. You're a ruler in Israel. And you don't know these things? And you know what Jesus implied? Nicodemus, you should know this because this is written in God's word. And so preacher and Christians, you should know because the election is written in God's word. And so when you get to heaven and you're one of those people that say, we got to wait to find out, then you ask Jesus about this, he'll give you this reply. I already told you, you're a preacher in a church and you don't know this? Now, why was this doctrine of election so important to Paul? And why does he bring it up here in this passage? It's because of assurance. You see that in verse number 5. It's because of assurance. The Thessalonians wondered, has something gone wrong? Why are we persecuted? We so faithfully serve the Lord. Why are we persecuted? Has God forgotten us? Did Jesus come and somehow we missed it? And Paul said, no, you, you, don't, you don't need to worry. God hasn't forgotten you. You don't need to be afraid. When Christ returns, he will take you. Because you were chosen by God to be with him. So the first guarantee, before we tackle anything else in this letter, is right up front in these first few words. You can be sure that you are God's elect. You can be sure that you are saved. You were chosen by God and there's evidence to prove it. Contrary to the Baptist pastor who says that election means you can't know that you're saved, our Baptist forefathers recognized that election is the basis of the assurance of our salvation. They never wanted to get rid of this doctrine as many Baptists today do. I want you to listen to this statement they made in the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. This was in 1742. This is the affirmation of American Baptists when our country was founded. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him, the oath of God and the abiding of his spirit and the seed of God within them and the nature of the covenant of grace from all which ariseth also the certainty and the infallibility thereof. Folks, that is the reason you believe and continue to believe. You believe and continue to believe because of the immutability, because of the unchangeableness of the eternal decree of election. You were chosen by God. That's the doctrine I want to talk to you about. Why is election such a great doctrine? Well, we're going to explore it in these next few sermons. Now, we're just getting our feet wet in this doctrine, so let's begin the outline. First question we ask is, what is election? What is it? Well, some, when they first came to our church, told me that they had never thought about the doctrine of election. And there's a reason that they hadn't. It's because most Baptists don't teach it. And most preachers are deathly afraid of it. And most pastors don't actually know enough to talk about it. 
This was my experience with the Baptist pastor I told you about. I personally discussed this with him. And as we discussed it, he was the artful dodger. He dodged questions, made excuses. He was thoroughly confused about how to handle Bible texts that teach it. And my purpose is never to shame anyone in their knowledge of this, but to teach people the truth. So not knowing how to answer, especially when I used terms that he'd never heard of and scriptures that he never understood, he scurried to find a book. And then in a flash, he became an expert. And then he preached a series of messages on the doctrines of grace, which turned out to be fabrications and imagination with as much substance as steam. So I get this. I, I, I get this. Many don't understand this because their preachers run from it. And they tell their people not to listen to it and, and to avoid anybody who preaches it. And so if they've heard anything about it at all, most of what they heard, if not all that they've heard, is wrong. They don't understand it. And they deny what they don't understand. And some are genuinely confused. Although the Bible speaks of election in dozens of places and the concept is found throughout the scriptures, how is it that people don't see that God chooses people? And then why is it when they're taught and they begin to learn the things of God and they begin to understand, how is it that they can read the Bible and not see it and not love the fact that they do? Why don't they know? Why do they avoid it? When our Baptists forefathers and great men of the faith love this doctrine. They cherish the doctrine. Why did they write so much about it? Why is my library filled with great theologians like Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon and Matthew Henry and John Gill and Augustus Strong and G.T. Shedd and R.L. Dabney and James Boyce and Benjamin Warfield and Charles Hodge and Louis Burkhoff and Benjamin Keach, some of the greatest men of the faith. You get the picture, don't you? They all believed it and taught this doctrine. Our Baptist forefathers believed and taught this doctrine. And it's not just that many people have believed it that's important. That's not the most important thing. The most important is that Christ and the apostles taught it. And not just them, but Moses and David and Elijah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Read the Bible. It's here. So why do those who have learned the doctrine love it so much? It's because they love the truth. It's because when spiritual eyes are opened to see the marvelous grace of our Lord and to see how He planned our salvation before He created the world, that He loved us so much that He planned a world that would honor and glorify Him and He made you a part of that glory, what's better than to know that? But some don't know. And they need to know it. And for those of you who do know it, you love to hear it again. I'm counting on that because I think most of you know it. What is election? James Boyce, in the abstract of systematic theology, wrote, God of his own purpose has from eternity determined to save a definite number of mankind as individuals, not for or because of any merit of work in them, nor of any value of, uh, to him of them, but by his own good pleasure. Augustus Strong, in his systematic theology, wrote, Election is that eternal act of God by which in his sovereign pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, he chooses certain ones out of the number of sinful men to be recipients of the special grace of his spirit and to be made voluntary partakers of Christ's salvation. Oh, you can read those statements and you can see why there's confusion. You can see why people don't like 
these statements. They don't want God to make choices. They insist that man's will should be preserved at all cost, even if that cost includes hell. So I'm happy that Strong, in his definition, added that the Holy Spirit makes people voluntary partakers of Christ's salvation. And you might have a lot of trouble understanding how can somebody be made to be a volunteer. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that when the Holy Spirit reveals Christ, when he opens your eyes to see who Christ is, your desires change. And only then do you want Christ. And so you voluntarily come to him for salvation. God decides who will understand. Because, well, folks, he's God. And there are people that don't understand, which shows it must not be God's will that they do. He's the one who makes the difference in them. And I realize those definitions might even make it harder for you to understand. So I'm going to try to simplify it even more for you. The simplest definition plays off Charles Spurgeon's explanation. We can simply ask, does God have the right to save whomever he wants? Is there anybody who can say to God, God, your choices are wrong? I think all of us believe that God created man and that God has the right to do with his creatures as he pleases. God can save all people. He has the power to save all people. But it's apparent that he doesn't. And so the second question follows, does he have the right to intend to save whom he pleases? And in that question, we find election. Election is God's intent to save some sinners. It's God's intent to save some out of the fallen race. If he intended to save all, then all would be saved. Augustus Strong also wrote, the election of God is eternal. That perfectly matches scripture. How is it eternal? Well, if God is eternal and God is unchangeable, then all of his works must be eternal. In other words, what God intends, he, he's always intended. God is. God is. God is always present tense. He lives in the eternal present. What God is, God has always been. What God is, is what God will always be. There is nothing that is new to God. You are not new to him. Your birth is not new to him. Your death is not new to him. Your destiny is not new to him. God always knows because God is always determined. He is the unchangeable, eternal God. And we've got to understand that. God is eternal. God is the one who sets the course of eternal, of human history. Now Spurgeon put it eloquently in this quote. Before salvation came into this world, election marched in the very forefront and had for its work the billeting, that is the lodging of salvation. Election went through the world and marked the houses to which salvation should come and the hearts in which the treasure should be deposited. Election looked through all the race of man from Adam down to the last and marked with sacred stamp those for whom salvation was designed. He must needs go through Samaria, said election, and salvation must go there. Then came predestination. Predestination did not merely mark the house, but it mapped the road in which salvation should travel to that house. Predestination ordained every step of the great army of salvation. It ordained the time when the sinner should be brought to Christ, the manner how he should be saved, the means that should be employed. And it marked the exact hour and moment 
when God the Spirit should quicken the dead in sin, and when peace and pardon should be spoken through the blood of Jesus. Predestination marked the way so completely that salvation doth never overstep the bounds, and it is never at a loss for the road. In the everlasting decree of the sovereign God, the footsteps of mercy were every one of them ordained. Now some of you might get overwhelmed with concepts that the human mind naturally rejects. Perhaps you think, oh, well, these things aren't worth thinking about. This isn't really worth knowing. And unfortunately, most people in most churches don't think about it. They don't want their thinking stretched. People just want to be left alone. Let's don't challenge anybody with any doctrine. But if you are to know God, and if you are to understand your salvation better, and if you want to be strongly assured that you're saved, you need to be very serious about the study of God's Word and do your best to understand it. In Scripture... Maturity in the faith, our sanctification, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is the same as, remember from last week in the book of Colossians, the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. Now this Thessalonian letter is a sanctification letter and sanctification cannot be complete without knowing God. And so what you need to do is is to buckle up for this study. And if it challenges you, so be it. And if it becomes too challenging, well, the Latte Church is right around the corner and you can go get your social buzz there. We've also got to understand that when Paul wrote this letter, he wrote it to ordinary Christians. Many people in the churches were slaves. And as he said to the Corinthians, there are not many mighty, there are not many worldly wise, there are not many of the noble that are called to salvation. So who does that leave? That leaves me and you, people just like us. They, they'd not received much teaching when Paul wrote this letter and he encouraged them to continue holding out for Christ. And what doctrine does he start with to give them assurance? It's this one, the doctrine of election. You were chosen by God. You were ordained to endure suffering as you wait on Christ to return. So what is election? We have our answer. It's God's determination to save some people out of the fallen race. It's a divine sovereign choice. And there is no one who has a right to complain. Because without it, the entire human race dies and goes to hell. God does not choose us to go to hell. God doesn't need to choose people to go to hell. We're already headed there. Because of our voluntary rejection of the gospel. Our statement of faith makes that very clear. It says nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth. But his own inherent depravity and voluntary rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the complaint against the doctrine is almost always that election keeps people out of heaven. No. No it never kept anybody out of, a, out of heaven. Election is positive. It's unto salvation. It ensures that there are some who will be in heaven. Now in God's choice, he never does violence to anyone. Those who die and go to hell don't go there beating down heaven's door trying to get in and God won't let them because they're not chosen. Nobody desires heaven. Nobody seeks God. And so if we desire him... And if we desire life in Him, it's only because of God's mercy and grace. 
And thank God that He is merciful to us. He chose us to salvation because we would never choose Him. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God, you are chosen. Paul knew it. They knew it. And you can know it too. Have you believed? Then you are God's chosen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a great doctrine that we approach somewhat with reverence, fear, and trembling because we dare not mishandle it. We dare not deny it. We must take your word as it's given, believe every word that's given, not try to explain this away because we don't fully understand your mind and what you do. We'll never understand that. Ours is to believe what your word says. And Lord, when we do believe, when we take your word as it is, there is such rejoicing that comes over us and such such joy that this is true. And we gain assurance from it. We gain hope from it. And we praise you evermore because in your mercy and grace and your love before we were ever born could do anything good, bad, otherwise, you designed salvation for us. We thank you for that, Lord. And now I pray, Father, if someone is here today who hasn't yet received this faith in Jesus Christ, has not believed, that you would open up their eyes to the truth as you must to all people who believe. Open up their eyes to this truth and cause them to come to you. Draw them to Jesus Christ. And may they pray earnestly for that drawing to see Christ, to know him, and come to him in faith. Bless us, Lord. Bless our people. Bless the message that's been delivered today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.